It's Friday, September 4th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A slew of post-convention polling has come out, and it shows that both candidates have emerged roughly where they were before. Joe Biden still maintains a lead, but President Trump has gained a little bit of ground in certain state polls. One of the next big moments that could impact the race comes at the end of September when the first debates are held. Stephen Shepard, chief polling analyst at Politico, joins us for more. Next, America is running low on a crucial resource for coronavirus vaccines and drugs, monkeys. The pandemic has created a huge demand for monkeys as research test subjects. There has been a drop in supply from China, which supplied 60% of monkeys imported to the U.S., and we are already dealing with decreased numbers. Sarah Zhang, writer at The Atlantic, joins us for how we are short on these animals needed for research. Finally, Amazon is one step closer to delivering that package to you by drone. The FAA just granted them approval to operate its fleet of delivery drones, a program they call Prime Air. Their drone would be capable of delivering cargo that is lighter than five pounds, hopefully in about 30 minutes. Rob Berger, associate editor at Popular Science, joins us for the latest and why it still might be some time before you see drones flying everywhere. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Joe Biden is weak. He takes his marching orders from liberal hypocrites who drive their cities into the ground while fleeing far from the scene of the wreckage. Joining us now is Stephen Shepard, chief polling analyst at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. Thanks for having me. We got a bunch of new polls in after both of the conventions have come and gone now. And for the most part, it looks like we're still in the same place. There might have been a slight bump for both of the candidates, but they all kind of wash out evenly. Let's start with some of these top takeaways uh, and, and let's start with the national polls. What do those look like? Sure. Well, you mentioned them washing out. This is one of the perils of having back-to-back national party conventions. Uh, it's difficult to gauge whether one candidate has a bounce when the next convention follows just a few days later. But if we look at sort of before the conventions and after the conventions in the national polling average, Joe Biden's lead went from 7.7 points to 7.2 points, so dropping half a percentage point. That's really not a significant change. Um, We saw a bunch of polls come out just on Wednesday. That was kind of the big day for, for national surveys from CNN, from USA Today and Suffolk University, from Grinnell College and, and Ann Selzer out in Iowa, uh, the legendary pollster out there, uh, all showed Joe Biden with a lead between 7 and 10 percentage points, also Quinnipiac University. Uh, that is, again, just barely, uncha- barely changed a little bit, a little tighter from where the race stood before the convention. So uh, I don't think either candidate could claim any kind of big galvanizing momentum, which is obviously a problem for President Trump, because he's the one who needs to turn around this deficit and at least cut into it uh, in order to compete in the Electoral College come November. What about state polls? Because, uh, you know, these are a little bit you know, more focused. Uh, these are tend to um, have a closer numbers because they're not these big national polls. What did the state polls say? Yeah. The one thing we learned from 2016 is that the states that decide the Electoral College are slightly more Republican than the country overall, and that that's how President Trump was able to win the Electoral College despite losing the popular vote by around two percentage points. So in the states, it's a little bit more of a mixed bag. There are some polls that show 
some close races in states. Monmouth University releasing polls this week in both North Carolina and Pennsylvania that have uh, either Joe Biden slightly ahead or, or deadlocked with President Trump, depending on the likely voter model that you use. Yet there are other state polls. Fox News uh, gave Joe Biden a little bit bigger lead in North Carolina, four points. Also gave him pretty significant leads in both Arizona and Wisconsin. Those are, are obviously two states that President Trump carried in 2016 that would be big pickups for the Democrat. Uh, Quinnipiac University also giving Joe Biden a little bit of a lead in Florida, obviously the largest swing state with 29 electoral votes, and also in Pennsylvania, which I mentioned above was close in the Monmouth poll. So overall, kind of a, a Certainly Joe Biden uh, with the advantage across these swing states. But there are some questions about uh, just just how secure his lead is and how much in the ball game President Trump is uh, in terms of, of a surge. Well, what kind of surge it would take over the final two months to flip some of these states back into his column. Which were the polls that got it right in 2016? We know that a lot of the big national polls were kind of skewing the wrong way. Which one's got it right, and, and have we started to see numbers out of those at least this time around? The national polls were pretty close in 2016. I think this is something that um, people have kind of a mistaken idea about uh, based on some of the results of the state polls. In the national polls, uh, Hillary Clinton on average had about a three-point lead on Election Day. She won by a little over two points. So that is that is pretty close. Of course, that gave us, because this is a state-by-state election, that gave us a little bit of a misleading idea uh, what the dynamics of the race actually looked like on Election Day. It was some of the state polls that were off by significant margins, especially in the three core Midwestern states that we talk about when we talk about President Trump's victory, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Now, in a lot of cases, the polls that we're, when I say we're, the polls were off, these polls were conducted a week or a little bit longer before Election Day. And one of the things we know from the exit poll is that voters said they decided late, whether in the, the last couple of days of the campaign broke pretty strongly for President Trump. So I, I think, you know, ultimately, I don't know how wrong, quote unquote, wrong the polls were, uh, but certainly he out, President Trump outperformed his standing in those final pre-election polls. Uh, he'll need to do so again and by a more significant margin uh, if the race does not change in the next two months. Uh, and so that's something I'm watching. Do, do those polls tighten that get him more in the ball game, in the ballpark? And that next big possible moment could be Tuesday, September 29th, which is the first presidential debate. It's going to be moderated by Chris Wallace from Fox News. Uh, that's kind of the next big uh, inflection point in this race. Certainly the next big inflection point that we know about. Um, certainly there's right. been a lot of <laughs> <Exactly>. news <laughs> over the past few months, whether it's the coronavirus pandemic, these protests over uh, police brutality uh, and racial inequality. As far as the debate goes, you're absolutely right. Both sides are going to be doing a lot of debate prep, I know. These debates generally get really, really big viewership numbers. So I think for both candidates, this is something they're both looking toward, whether it's Joe Biden delivering a strong performance to cement his lead in this race or President Trump looking to disrupt the race and show voters who maybe have drifted over to Joe Biden that they should come back and that he's the, the better candidate for the job. Stephen Shepard, chief polling analyst at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
last year, the U.S. imported about 35,000 monkeys total. 60% of them came from China. And when the pandemic started, China actually just shut off all exports. So you can imagine this is thousands of monkeys that would normally be coming here being used in experiments, and they're not here anymore. Joining us now is Sarah Zhang, writer at The Atlantic. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thank you. Good to be here. Throughout this whole pandemic and the rush to get therapeutics and vaccines, there's been one interesting thing that you wrote about that I never thought about before is we need a lot of animals to test some of these things on testing vaccines, testing other medications. And one of the main animals that we use are monkeys. And throughout this whole thing now, we're realizing that there's actually a big shortage of monkeys that we use for scientific research. Sarah, tell us a little bit first what kind of monkeys we use in scientific research of this nature for, to develop vaccines and whatnot. And then beyond that, why are we experiencing this shortage? Monkeys are typically kind of the last step before a human clinical trial. So the way development for a vaccine or a treatment might work is that you might start with mice or ferrets or hamsters, and you go to something closer to a human, which are monkeys, and then you finally go into humans. The species are usually used a lot of biomedical research. There are two species in macaques, rhesus macaques and cyanomogus macaques. And the reason we're experiencing shortage is threefold. Well, first is just we're in this pandemic, right? So there's just like a huge interest in testing therapies, testing vaccines, testing possible drugs. So there's just like a huge demand. And the second reason is supply related, which is that a lot of the monkeys that get used in biomedical research in the U.S. actually come from China. China is a big supplier of monkeys for biomedical research around the world. Last year, the U.S. imported about 35,000 monkeys total. 60% of them came from China. And when the pandemic started, China actually just shut off all exports. So you can imagine this is thousands of monkeys that would normally be coming here being used in experiments, and they're not here anymore. The third reason, a little bit more subtle, is that there has kind of been ongoing shortages and difficult getting monkeys for lots of researchers over the past few years. This has to do actually with the fact that funding for primate research can be hard to come by in the U.S. It's expensive. And a lot of the kind of breeding and energy has in fact shifted to China. Specific to COVID-19, monkeys that are infected with that are kept in special labs because they don't want anything to get out. So special labs that have ventilation requirements so things don't get out. And there's a limited number of those as well. Um, monkeys with COVID have to be kept in what are called animal biosafety level three labs. And the point is that, of course, you don't want this, uh, the monkey to first infect humans. You also don't want the monkey to infect other monkeys in the colony, because if you infect all the monkeys in the colony, first of all, some of them might get sick and die, but then you also can't use them for research anymore. So there's a really limited amount of space there in these particular labs. There's only a certain number in the U.S. So this, this is kind of like an additional logistic problem on like just the pure number of monkeys. There's a lot of other animals that are used, as you mentioned earlier, not just monkeys. But one of the other things they say, you know, with regards to COVID-19, maybe they're not the best animal model for the disease because specifically they usually only get mildly sick from COVID-19. So if we want to study the most severe effects, they might not be the right one. And as you mentioned, it was kind of a we could see this coming, the shortage coming, but there's so much that goes into it. Breeding more monkeys here in the U.S. would take a long time. It's very expensive. We just don't have that infrastructure set up to house and care for them. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think um, what we're seeing because we're having this current crunch is first scientists thinking about creative ways to use fewer monkeys. So one of the things that they're talking about is that 
there's kind of a network of nationally funded national primate research centers around the country that are kind of like the locus for a lot of the academic research involving non-human primates. So what they're talking about doing is sharing controlled arms. And what that means is that usually when you run an experiment, you give some number of monkeys, for example, the new drug. And then you have a control arm, which is the monkeys, and you don't give them anything. And this kind of gives you a baseline for comparison. So what they're talking about doing is like sharing control arms between different labs so that you can use fewer number of monkeys total. Another issue is, as you mentioned, you know, can we use other animals? Primate research is usually not kind of undertaken lightly in the U.S. because it is very expensive. And even in normal conditions, you can only get a limited number of animals. So a lot of times you have to think about what exactly about the disease we want to study. And are primates the best example of that? And as you were saying, monkeys tend not to get very sick with covid so if you want to study like a really serious illness, like you want to study if a drug will work in people who are so ill that they need to be in a ventilator, maybe monkey is not the best model or certainly not the best first model to go into. On the other hand, in some ways, the fact that they don't get seriously ill is actually reflects what happens in humans, right? The vast majority of humans who get COVID also don't get seriously ill. So, you know, in some ways, this is saying it's not great to study a serious, like a model of serious illness in monkeys, but maybe that also kind of reflects their closeness to us. The phrase that gets used a lot in scientific research is non-human primates, which is also kind of a funny phrase because it kind of reminds us, oh, we are also primates. We have to, say that these have to specify these are non-humans. And one of the other difficulties, and this is kind of the sad part with regards to COVID-19 specifically, we can't reuse those monkeys in other studies. They actually euthanize those just to prevent spread to other monkeys or even other humans potentially. So the cost just kind of keeps going up with all of that. Earlier, we were talking about how the monkeys with COVID have to be, have to be kept in these special biosafety lab spaces. The problem, as scientists told me, is that you can't take them out, which is why you have to euthanize them. Because once you take them out, there's the fear that they could spread to humans or that they could spread to other monkeys. And as we we're talking about, like if it spreads to the rest of the colony, you could have like a problem on your hands. Sarah Zhang, writer at The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. All right. Thank you for having me. The kind of packages that it can carry, as you said, are five pounds or less. And that sounds like a pretty small amount. You know, you think, okay, that's pretty light. But an Amazon executive has actually said in the past, you know, that packages that are five pounds or less make up the vast majority of the kind of packages that Amazon delivers. Joining us now is Rob Verger, associate editor at Popular Science. Thanks for joining us, Rob. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Amazon has taken one big step closer to being able to deliver packages to you by drone. The FAA just gave them clearance so that they can move forward with their fleet of what they're calling prime air delivery drones. Rob, tell us a little bit more about this. So last week, Amazon got this kind of big permission from the FAA, what's called a Part 135 Air Carrier Certificate. And that's basically the FAA saying to Amazon, look, you can go ahead and start trying to deliver packages to customers by drone. And there's certainly some restrictions that Amazon has to follow. And this is really a kind of preliminary new thing for the company. But it's something that Amazon has wanted to be able to do for a while, which is deliver small light packages to customers by drone. And now that it's gotten the green light from the FAA, I think we can expect to start seeing more of this in the future. Tell us a little bit about what kind of packages they would be able to deliver. Because my understanding is that the drones that they're using is rated for cargo that's lighter than five pounds. But that makes up a pretty big percentage of the packages that Amazon delivers. 
The FAA specifically gave Amazon permission to use one type of drone that Amazon's been working on, which is called the Mark 27. And it's got six propellers and it takes off and lands like a helicopter and then it flies through the air a little bit more like an airplane. It gets a little bit of lift from some of the shrouds that are over its propellers. And the kind of packages that it can carry, as you said, are five pounds or less. And that sounds like a pretty small amount. You know, you think, okay, that's pretty light. But an Amazon executive has actually said in the past, you know, that packages that are five pounds or less make up the vast majority of the kind of packages that Amazon delivers. So this drone is not going to be delivering flat panel TVs to people ever, probably, (laughs) but pairs of shoes or the like, you know, kind of small light things to rural areas. That could be the kind of thing that Amazon targets for this new service. Let's talk about a little bit more of what they can and cannot do, though. What are some of the limitations that the FAA put on Amazon and their drones? The FAA has basically said, hey, you know, you can push forward with this, but some of the restrictions include things like the drone can't fly higher than 400 feet above ground level, or it can't fly at night unless it has, you know, appropriate lighting, or, you know, has to fly with an anti-collision light, or it can't fly over roads laterally for more than 250 feet. So what you're really seeing here is the FAA kind of taking a whole bunch of rules that traditionally obviously were invented and kind of now enforced for traditional aircraft and finding exceptions to those rules for Amazon to push forward with what it wants to do, but still keeping some restrictions. So like another restriction is something like there has to be a hundred foot radius around the landing area where the drone would deliver a package. So obviously that means it's not going to be able to come up to a New York City fire escape and drop off a package. It's (laughs) it's going to need a big rural area, kind of a backfield free of humans to drop something off. So there's restrictions that Amazon has to follow. And my impression is that those kind of restrictions may keep evolving and changing as Amazon demonstrates what it can and can't do. Let's say the drone hits a bird or just runs into a light pole or something like that. What are they going to do when that stuff happens? That's one of the big questions here. And I think that what's happening here is the FAA is taking these kind of historic regulations that were put into place for manned aircraft. And when there's an incident or an accident with a regular airliner, for example, the NTSB uh, investigates. And there's some very well-established protocols, as there should be for that kind of thing. And in the a review document that the FAA published, it paraphrased something that the Airline Pilots Association made in a comment, which basically said something to the effect of, hey, we're a little bit concerned that If Amazon has an incident or an accident, their documents kind of imply that Amazon itself and only Amazon would investigate what happened. And, you know, in reality, going forward, if there's an incident like this, even if it's from an Amazon drone, one would hope that the government or the NTSB would also have a hand in investigating what happened and would have access to kind of the equivalent of the black box technology on a drone. So there's plenty for Amazon and the FAA to figure out as they go forward. They're not the only game in town with this. UPS and the Google parent company Alphabet, they have a division. It's called Wing. They've also gotten FAA approval for drone delivery operations. Yeah, I spoke with an expert at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, and he said that, you know, some drone advocates have been kind of frustrated at the pace of change from the bureaucracy that the FAA imposes and that they're now kind of going to be thrilled with this exemption that basically says, hey, drones are a new technology. We're going to let Amazon try delivering packages by them because, you know, it is perhaps in the public interest. So I think there's some folks who are going to be very thrilled by this as Amazon blazes new territory for them and others, maybe more traditional kind of airline pilots association types who are like, hey, we need to make sure this happens in a careful, cautious way. Rob Verger, associate editor at Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. That's it for today. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Divers is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.